Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. And welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined, as always, by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Radia Lu, CREI Fertility Specialist. Next in our series of personalising PCOS, we are speaking with obstetrician Dr. Annie Khrushchev about pregnancy and PCOS. Annie, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for having me today. Annie, introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm an obstetrician gynaecologist who went on and specialised a bit further in high-risk pregnancies. I studied in Melbourne um, through Melbourne University and I completed my six-year obstetrics and gynaecology general training. And then I decided to pursue further three years of formal training in pregnancies that are affected by either maternal or fetal problems. And so I deal with the, I guess, more complex end of pregnancy spectrum. When Raylia said this was a topic for us to do, I didn't really know how PCOS could affect pregnancy. PCOS itself doesn't necessarily affect pregnancy because some women who do have PCOS and we assist to conceive or who conceive naturally despite having irregular cycles, because not everybody who has PCOS needs help, they might not ovulate by the clock or by the calendar, but a woman with PCOS can ovulate and have a partner who has normal sperm and get pregnant naturally as well. But to me, the reason I wanted to invite Annie to this podcast was really to explore some of the benefits, I suppose, of managing PCOS well in terms of a holistic model to try and prevent some of the problems that are more common in pregnancy for women with PCOS, particularly in the spectrum of developing gestational diabetes and also to discuss some of the risks associated with having a pregnancy if a woman is of a high BMI category because that women of a high BMI category are overrepresented in the PCOS population. In terms of uh, a woman with PCOS, I would say that a significant proportion go on to develop what's called gestational diabetes. Annie, how do you explain gestational diabetes to one of your patients? Most women would know what diabetes is and uh, it is essentially associated with poor sugar control in the bloodstream and that in turn has lots of downstream effects. So when I say gestational diabetes, I explain to my pregnant patients that it is much more common to occur in association with pregnancy, and that is due to the normal physiological changes that occur in pregnant women. There are particular reasons why that happens. The fetus relies on sugar for its energy requirements and growth, and having high sugar levels is a prerequisite to normal pregnancy. And that occurs through a number of hormones that are naturally elevated during pregnancy 
And in some women, unfortunately, the sugar levels tend to be at a level that we consider too high, and that would be consistent with diabetes. So essentially, gestational diabetes is a bit like the diabetes you may know otherwise in life, but which specifically occurs in pregnancy for that short period of the gestation, and most of the time disappears at the end of the pregnancy. Unfortunately, however, women with gestational diabetes do have a much higher risk of developing diabetes in their lifetime, and that is in the order of 50%. And what I tend to say to women is to think of the diabetes in the pregnancy as a bit of a cloud with silver lining. So it's a little warning about what might happen 20, 30 years, um, in 20 or 30 years' time, and that it gives them an opportunity perhaps to look at some of the things that they can modify to prevent them from developing these complications down the track. By controlling the diabetes in the pregnancy, we have a chance to optimise the health of mum and baby, but also it allows women to then keep a track of their own health and to perhaps diagnose the diabetes early and really prevent the long-term complications of undiagnosed diabetes, which can really surface um, in, in people's sort of 50s and 60s and result in heart attacks, strokes, and very rarely, you know, more severe outcomes like amputations that some of us might be aware of. Radio, we've spoken in previous episodes, I think especially with Wendy Fideli, our dietitian, we've spoken about insulin resistance and the role of metformin and weight management before pregnancy, and that's helping to prevent the gestational diabetes? Not really. I mean, it's more of the fact that women with PCOS have a greater prevalence of insulin resistance. And so other women who might not have polycystic ovaries can also have insulin resistance without having polycystic ovaries or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And in fact, there are many groups that I look at from a fertility perspective who might have an increased risk of gestational diabetes. So for example, just being older puts you at a higher risk of developing gestational diabetes. As we get older, our metabolism slows and insulin resistance becomes more prevalent in general. Women who are overweight or have a high BMI may not have polycystic ovarian syndrome, but they are also another group who have an increased risk of gestational diabetes. And there are certain ethnic groups where genetically there's a higher prevalence of gestational diabetes. For example, women from Southeast Asia, uh, particularly Indian subcontinent, have an increased risk of gestational diabetes from an ethnicity point of view. Women with PCOS are another risk or at-risk group and they may require screening at an earlier stage and a higher index of suspicion for gestational diabetes. Annie, if you have a patient who you identify through their medical history as being of at risk of gestational diabetes, how would you manage that pregnancy differently? Part of the management really involves assessment of the risk of gestational diabetes earlier on in the pregnancy as well as later on. Um, most pregnant women are advised to have a test for gestational diabetes and that's the oral glucose tolerance test which does involve three blood tests and a very sweet sugary drink um, and that's normally done between 26 to 28 weeks. That's when I'd recommend um, its normal performance. However, in women who are at high risk of uh, gestational diabetes, we would usually test earlier on. So at very high risk, perhaps towards the end of the first trimester, but for many um, by 16 to 18 weeks. And the reason we would do that is to try and gain a bit more time 
in optimising or controlling the diabetes before the pregnancy is over because it's obviously a very short period in a woman's life. Annie, we often use metformin in polycystic ovarian syndrome more so at the level of the ovary for its actions on receptors like the IGF-1 receptor expression and to try and reduce the thresholds for ovulation. That's how we think metformin often helps in, in polycystic ovarian syndrome. Metformin, when I was studying obstetrics, probably similar similar stage to when you were, I remember first meeting you, I think, in the um, early stages of our obstetric training. Metformin at that stage wasn't widely used in pregnancy. Can you tell us if that's changed? Yeah, so metformin... I think was partly not used because there were significant concerns that we just did not know what it meant for pregnancy, both early pregnancy in terms of risks of higher pregnancy loss, um, what it meant for other complications, and particularly the long-term risks. Since then, clinician researchers and scientists have certainly gathered a lot more evidence about its safety for use during pregnancy and um, early neonatal or early baby outcomes. What we're still lacking in, however, is the long-term outcomes. So we really don't know what it means for pregnant mothers or for women down the track and particularly for their children, say, 10, 20 years down the track. And scant evidence is starting to emerge once again of safety, but we are still some way to go. Studies that require long-term follow-up, unfortunately, are few and far between. And the more we, I suppose, study medications in pregnancy, the more we appreciate that those long-term safety results are very, very important to reassure pregnant women to stay compliant with medications that we might be recommending through their assisted reproduction or um, to take either in early or throughout their whole pregnancy. So I do see women who may have come from a reproductive specialist such as yourself who may have been advised to start on metformin really to help in the early part of pregnancy. There were suggestions for lower rates of miscarriages and that is why some specialists would advise the women to use it and maybe stop the metformin at the end of the first trimester. Women who are already known to be diabetic, particularly, for example, in the setting of PCOS um, or a type 2 diabetic pre-pregnancy, may well continue on metformin as part of control for their diabetes. So what the metformin might do is reduce their insulin requirements and control their blood sugar at a more even level throughout the pregnancy, which is important for uh, particularly fetal health. So Annie, I think we can probably reassure women who have PCOS if they do fall pregnant on metformin that there's no increased known risk of birth defects at the very early stages of pregnancy. But I would usually say to my patients who are not diabetic but have polycystic ovarian syndrome that they can cease their metformin when they do fall pregnant. Would you agree with that practice? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that the evidence is as convincing in terms of a specific benefit for continuing metformin throughout the pregnancy. There are numerous studies and nowadays we have moved from probably more observational or retrospective studies, so studies that look back at what happened in pregnancy and what the outcomes were to studies that enrol women from the start of their pregnancy and look at the outcomes because they're less prone to bias. And then really the highest level of evidence is when we combine all of these studies to get large numbers to show us what benefits or risks there might be of of various medications. 
So even with that highest level of evidence, um, it's probably hard to recommend that every woman who has been on metformin should should stay on it because there is a significant improvement in outcomes, although there are some associations for improvement um, in certain certain things. But I would agree with you, for most women, as we can't be 100% certain about the long-term effects, if we're not perceiving that there is a significant benefit to using a particular medication, certainly stopping it at the end of the first trimester would be reasonable. It also does take away from the burden that women have in terms of remembering to take regular multivitamins as well as maybe other medications that they might require, such as to control their high blood pressure or maybe insulin injections or having to check their sugar control. So ultimately the the simpler that the pregnancy medication regimen can be, I think the more enjoyable the pregnancy because pregnancy itself is a time of such significant change, emotional, physical, physiological, that the simpler we can make it, I do feel, the better it is for mum and baby and particularly so for women who have high risk of complications or already have some on board. If a patient has a test early in their pregnancy because of a suspicion of high risk of gestational diabetes and it's found that they are at risk of gestational diabetes and we're worried they have early gestational diabetes, what are the things you talk to a patient about in that context? Much as I said at the start, I try to reassure them that as much as it feels sometimes like the end of the world, goodness, it's another thing that I have to deal with. I do really explain that it is an important thing allowing us to make a difference. And in fact, I ask them to relax because we do have more weeks ahead of us where we can make a difference. So the first things that would normally happen is I would link them in with a diabetes educator who would have a discussion about testing the blood sugars. And whilst it sounds like an awful plight to have to prick your fingers to check the blood sugar, most women embrace that and soon enough that's not a huge problem. Either the diabetes educator or a dietitian can really spend a bit of time to review diet because the mainstay of treatment for gestational diabetes is still dietary control as well as increasing physical activity because both of these have a significant impact on the gestational diabetes. I would usually involve an endocrinologist in their care Once again, because of what I mentioned earlier, that long-term risk of diabetes, and I think it is time well spent, perhaps an hour at the start of pregnancy with an endocrinologist, to really understand what those risks are and why we put so much importance on the gestational diabetes. We would then meet a little bit more frequently um, together with um, the other specialists to try and uh, maximise the sugar control as well as uh, minimise complications. And I do explain to women that the better the sugar control, the less of a chance that we end up perhaps with a baby that's larger than they otherwise should have been. So we spend some time talking about what does it mean for the rest of the pregnancy. Once again, it really depends on the type of diabetes, but if it is diabetes diagnosed very early, there is a possibility that it was present pre-pregnancy, and so there is a high chance that we might need to use insulin And that's another really scary prospect. So not only are we now using needles to test our blood sugar, but we also have to consider medication that is in an injectable form to control that blood sugar. The first two, three, possibly four weeks after diagnosis, we would really allow the pregnant lady to take her time taking stock of 
diet and uh, exercise or physical activity. It certainly does not need to be strenuous exercise. In fact, adding half an hour after dinner meal can make all the difference to the sugar levels in the morning. So we would spend some time working on those and hoping that they may very well improve um, the overall management of the diabetes. And for many women, in fact, that is all that is required through their pregnancy. It may be about blood sugar level testing. And whilst we start off testing quite intensively, if the sugar control is in fact quite good, women can space apart some of their um, sugar checks as well as all the visits that they would have to the other specialists. In gestational diabetes, there's a slightly increased risk of miscarriage and a slightly increased risk of having a baby with a fetal abnormality. Would we do any additional tests to the routine? Yep. So as I mentioned, once we speak to a pregnant lady with diabetes, I do mention the fact that there is increased risk. So the most significant risks are really in women who are entering pregnancy already diabetic. So that is the type 2 diabetes that maybe was undiagnosed or women with type 1 diabetes simply because the level of the blood sugar was potentially higher at that real important period when organs and structures in the baby were developing. And a lot of that is actually finished by six to eight weeks in its basic form. And from then on, it's about maturation and growth. But certainly, I do recommend this in all of my patients, but good quality scans. So usually a scan around 12 to 13 or 14 weeks would be very, very important to aid in the diagnosis of any early structural problems in the baby, as well as a very good quality 21-week scan to diagnose any of these problems. Because of then the issues that can occur around growth, women with gestational diabetes should have a scan at least four weekly, and sometimes that may be more frequently. And particularly in the third trimester, there is additional monitoring that we will do because of the possibility for poorer outcomes perinatally or closer to the time of birth. When a woman has had management for gestational diabetes and she's managed to get on top of it with diet and lifestyle changes without insulin, how would that affect your advice around delivery? Usually I'm very congratulatory about the fact that we have got to the end with little impact from the diabetes and in actual fact most of the time it doesn't alter our pregnancy management very much. So with a baby that is well grown, it's it's about our shared decision making in terms of when the baby should be born. Um, There is usually no need to change the timing or how we plan to have baby. Most women are very capable of having their babies vaginally and uh, we would just await the start of labour. One thing perhaps is, you know, not going too far overdue because we know that our tools in terms of estimating fetal size are not perfect. And so I may suggest, for example, the pregnancy not continuing beyond 40 to 41 weeks. But if the gestational diabetes has been well controlled, there is little evidence to suggest that there is a huge um, change in outcomes for either mum or baby or that we need to intervene in the pregnancy towards the end. How does that change if a woman has required insulin? The requirement for insulin really is signifying more complex, I suppose, metabolic change that's occurring in the body that we are trying to modify with our treatment. And we do know that the outcomes for babies particularly can be worse when there is insulin requirement. So it once again depends on the amount of insulin. There can be women that require very few units, for example, to control only their fasting blood sugar in the morning. And once again, that 
unlikely herald significant risks to the pregnancy or the timing that at which the baby should be delivered and we may not need to make significant changes. On the other hand, women who have significant insulin requirements very early on are at much higher risk of both very large babies or what we call fetal macrosomia as well as placentas that may be affected significantly by placental ischemia or I guess placental maturation that's occurring a lot more quickly than it should and in those cases the risks of worse outcomes are much more significant. So in those pregnancies we may only be able to reach 37, 38 weeks safely and then we would usually look at what the most appropriate method of delivery is. If the baby is not measuring particularly large then once again aiming for a vaginal delivery is perfectly reasonable but we may need to bring the pregnancy to an end by intervening and so that's usually through an induction of labour. We've talked a lot about weight and PCOS and how it affects fertility, but we haven't talked about how it affects pregnancy. How does being overweight affect your pregnancy? So there is multiple aspects, I suppose, that the effects of weight can affect pregnancy. We've spoken about the higher risks of having gestational diabetes and and the role that that might play and how we might manage it. But we also know that diabetes is what we call a pro-inflammatory state. And in general, inflammation anywhere in the body is not great for pregnancy. It can lead to higher risk of miscarriages early on in the pregnancy, and it can lead to a higher risk of other complications such as preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction, preterm delivery, and issues around the time of birth as well. There are lots and lots of reasons why it is good for both our general health but also for our pregnancy health and for our baby's health why we should be aiming to maintain as close to normal weight as possible and uh, we do know that that's not quite possible for everybody but the mainstay then or the biggest focus for me becomes to maintain weight, not put on excessive amounts whilst maybe not actively pursuing loss of weight during pregnancy. Many pregnant women who are overweight or obese during pregnancy and particularly if they also have diabetes and they're watching their diet and blood sugars closely may experience weight loss and in fact there is evidence um, emerging that that may not be in circumstances where there is obviously close follow-up of both mum and baby such a terrible thing. Um, However, for most women, it's about maintenance of the weight and and avoiding large further weight gains during the pregnancy. For some of my patients who have had to undertake measures to lose weight in order to be eligible for things like assisted reproductive treatments, because while I personally don't necessarily follow our RANS college guidelines to the letter that says that we shouldn't offer assisted reproductive treatments to women who have a BMI over 35. That would really exclude a lot of women. In the hospital where I perform egg collections for IVF, we are unable to perform egg collections on women whose BMI is over 42, which is in the category that is medically considered the morbid obese category. The reason for that is because of anaesthetic support being a concern and also because of the difficulty physically to perform an egg collection with good ultrasound visibility 
and therefore the increased risk of having a complication of a surgical nature like damage to intervening structures in the pelvis or excessive bleeding. In terms of my being able to look after my patients, I tend to set a goal, a BMI of 40 as the absolute maximum to start an IVF process with the woman's safety in mind from an anaesthetic and an operator uh, surgical risk perspective. Some of my patients do choose to go down the route of medical weight loss and others go down the route of surgical weight loss, such as gastric sleeve surgery. Currently, the advice is that if a woman does have rapid weight loss, that's not good for the baby in pregnancy, not good for the placenta. Are you able to tell us what the ideal time for those kind of interventions and should there be a lag time between when a woman does lose significant weight and when she undertakes planning for a pregnancy? Yeah, it's a great question and we do have a fair bit of evidence to suggest that ideally at least 12 to 24 months or perhaps 12 months as a minimum is is a good lag time. It is to allow all of the metabolic and biochemical changes that have been occurring in the woman's body and I suppose her homeostat. It's a bit like the thermostat at home that sets the temperature and keeps it at the right level. The homeostat is what keeps us where we should be in terms of our internal bodily functions. Taking that 12 months from the initial surgery or that initial rapid really weight loss and maintaining more stable weight does allow women to enter pregnancy um, at a better time and potentially risk less of some of those complications that we've spoken about. I have several patients who've been given that advice and it's a long time, particularly when a woman is worried about advancing age as a factor of infertility. And one of the things we've sometimes done for women is to freeze eggs or freeze embryos to allow them to then take that time with confidence to allow their bodies to settle before embarking on a pregnancy. And for some women I've found that has been a real game changer having the surgical weight loss because many women have tried very hard with every other method and have been unable to reach that BMI where they can access assisted reproductive treatments. I think it's especially hard for women where there's an absolute deal breaker from a fertility perspective. PCOS is not alone a deal breaker in any way of natural pregnancy, but if someone, say, for example, had PCOS and a severe male factor requiring ICSI and IVF, then saying they can't have treatment because of their BMI is like saying they can't have a baby. (laughs) And it's so hard because... I think, you know, women look around in society and there are women who have natural pregnancies who are of the same BMI and who don't have those restrictions. I I do agree with you. It is very difficult and it is a real ethical dilemma. And part of it is that we as doctors are obviously having to abide by the principle of first do no harm. And I think that's really the difference between the natural pregnancy and you having to put someone through a general anaesthetic and use of medications that potentially would put them at higher risk because of that weight alone. So it is really difficult. It, it can be a heartbreaking problem. But I do agree with you that if you are able to get down to the level that you can perform reproductive um, assisted reproduction appropriately and you can create some embryos or freeze the eggs, it does then allow that woman that luxury of time to really get through another few months or you know, a year perhaps 
before a pregnancy because the lower weight at starting the pregnancy then would make the pregnancy journey so much easier as well as the delivery and recovery from that birth experience a lot easier. Annie, you used a really nice phrase. I'm sorry if I'm paraphrasing, but you were talking about when you look after women and and negotiating a pathway together in terms of obstetric management. Yes, the shared decision-making pathway. Shared (laughs) decision-making. Can you tell us about that philosophy? Yeah, look, I think it's it's very important. Obviously, we live in a time where women are usually very well educated and have lots of resources and ability to learn and uh, understand their conditions as well as know a lot more about pregnancy and childbirth on the whole. And whenever there are complications and problems in terms of making outcomes better for mum and baby, it, it is so much easier if it is a partnership. I think it is important that we are all on board having prescriptive treatment regimens that are impossible to follow are not doing anyone any good. And so coming to an agreement of what's achievable becomes really important. So understanding the risks, having discussed them with your doctor and making a decision together about what can and can't be done and what the priorities are is really part of that shared decision-making about the pregnancy journey. Annie, can you tell us about your exciting new practice and how our listeners can find you if they'd like to have you as their obstetrician? Sure. Thank you for asking. So I do work through Monash Medical Centre as well as Jesse McPherson Private Hospital mostly. And you are right, um, I have finally partnered with a couple of other high-risk specialists as part of the Pregnancy Pod and certainly very shortly you will be able to find us online. We are in the Monash Health and Jesse McPherson precinct, but yes, very much website. If you search my name, you'll be able to find the details to contact us. Congratulations. Thank you. And we'll put all those links in the show notes so our listeners can find you. Thank you. Thank you, Annie, for sharing. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au.